Hello and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth, and this is season four, episode 12. Art starts with feeling, with Marceau Michel. I'm literally following my nose. We're all constantly becoming ourselves more and more. Marceau is a trilingual artist and entrepreneur. Experimenting with the pronoun it in addition to he and him. Marceau spoke with us about working as an interpreter for the deaf, the process to liberate oneself from outmoded ways of thinking, and its work raising $10 million for Black Founders Matter, a startup fund for Black entrepreneurs. Here's Marceau. Hey, I'm Marceau Michelle. I am a work in progress. I'm still figuring out where it is that I'm going with my life. Um, but so far, I feel like I've lead, led a lot of lives. I'm originally from New York City. Um, I was born and raised there. I was also raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses and participated in that religion for most of my life until I woke up a few years ago and started my real life. I'm queer. I run a venture fund called Black Founders Matter which was birthed from the experience of starting my own tech company and not being able to raise funding because of just the implicit bias that exists in the venture capital space. And so I decided to figure out a way to resolve that and how to solve, solve it for myself, how to liberate myself, and which is really connected to my heritage. My family is from Haiti. And I always think of the Haitians as, you know, they're the first independent Black nation. So you know, we were the people that liberated ourselves. So I'm always looking in my own life to liberate myself. I'm also a singer. I'm a DJ, which um, I truly love. Uh, I was an interpreter for the deaf for a really long time. So advocacy is something that is close to my heart. I'm also a community activist and organizer. I don't think of myself as a millennial. However, like I, there are so many like asterisks on my name or slash 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 like you know like you know like uh, you know a jack of many trades um but i'm someone that follows my passion i'm someone that um is following my nose i i've i've not like landed on one thing that i want to do forever but i find things that i'm good at that i love doing and i pursue them while i while i love doing them and then that grows and morphs into other things and so I am, um, I'm currently running this venture fund with uh, my partner, we're raising $10 million, which has been a huge learning curve for me, but uh, we're, we're fortunately, we're able to do it in a way that feels good to us and, that, and in a way that we are really proud of. My preferred pronoun is it, and I will settle for he, him. I say that because like he, him still feels true. And I've really decided to like, hang in there with he, him, because I feel like he, him needs a lot, like, is like, has been due for renovations for like centuries. When you, you know, when you're using the term it, you're talking about something very specific, right? And also it's like, if I were talking about like, you know, like my spider plant, I would say it, right? Like I haven't watered it, right? Like you can refer to a living thing and you would say it, right? Like for things that you don't necessarily quickly assign gender to, right? Like if you're talking about a tree, you would say it. If you were talking about a flower, you would say it. And so I'm like, I like it as a pronoun. Like, and it's specific. Like 
like for me, they, them doesn't feel true in reference to me because when I hear it, I'm like, no, I'm actually something very, very specific. Like I'm very specifically it. I am Marceau. Like that, my gender is Marceau. Like my identity is Marceau. My sexuality is Marceau. It's not gay. It's not bi. It's not, it's, it's me. I'm literally just like trying stuff out. I don't like feminine pronouns used for myself. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel real. And it's really common, like, especially in queer culture, it's really common, like, to use it. And I'm like, I don't use that. If someone likes, likes to have feminine pronouns used for them, like, that feels true. But it's like, I, I love women. I love femininity. Like, and I, and, and I, I think that, that femininity, I know femininity exists inside of me, but like, I, that pronoun doesn't hit for me. Black Founders Matter got started back in 2017 after like a meeting with a fellow entrepreneur where we were just lamenting over how hard our lives were as entrepreneurs and running our own businesses and running our own tech companies and and just the 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 brick walls that were like that we were like running into every single day and so you know we together devised this plan to liberate ourselves and so we started a hoodie and t-shirt campaign. Like it was just a swag campaign just to support black entrepreneurs and really to raise awareness around the issue. I feel like what happens often, you know, when you're a minority and when you are, when, when there's an elephant in the room, you know, it's like we, we existed as, uh, as underneath the elephant, right? It's like we're, we're stuck underneath the elephant in the room of like, no one's going to invest in us because, you know, for her being a woman, that being a, a huge barrier and for me being a black person being a huge barrier. So it's like we were living under the pressure of the, of the weight of this, this elephant in the room and we're like, what if we get on top of the elephant? What if we ride the elephant out of the room? We started it just as that, as just a hoodie and t-shirt thing. And it was just like, it just kept catching more wind and more life. And within like six months of it launching, like Black Founders Matter, my side of it, started getting national news traction, which was really odd to me. It was like, oh, this was just supposed to be, it really was like our moment to just kind of show a bit of our grit and show like what we're about. And, you know, as the thing about entrepreneurs and, and being an entrepreneur is that you, you know, you, when something doesn't work, you, you, you have to think your way out of it, right? You have to, you know, you have to solve the problems. I was like, oh, here's, here's a way to kind of, sh and you have to show your grit. Like, even if you don't figure out the 100% solution to the problem, just showing like your teeth are sharp and you're going to stay in the game no matter what. And like, that's what doing Black Founders Matter was initially about, was just like showing my, how sharp my teeth were. And it's like, wait, you're not going to give me money because I'm Black? Well, then fine, I'm going to call that out and I'm going to keep going. And so... So it started catching all this news traction. And in the course of those interviews, you know, they're like, what do you want to do outside of, um, you know, like selling these hoodies and t-shirts and raising this awareness? And, you know, I'm like, and I'm like, you know, I'd love to like, you know, raise a venture fund that was specifically for black entrepreneurs. And I had no idea what I was speaking into existence at that moment. I had no idea that it would lead me down this road and would bring so many wild experiences into my life and so i said that and that was that literally became the byline for the article was i was raising 10 million dollars and i was like wait what that was one sentence in like an hour-long conversation all of a sudden i was tasked with raising 10 million dollars and, and not even really understanding what that meant right or or understanding how venture capital works but not having really any experience in the space and so 
I decided, you know, after sitting down, thinking about it, really thoughtfully crying about it. I am a crier. And because, you know, it got to the point where Black Founders Matter was getting so much traction that it only made sense for me to shift my focus away from my startup and what I was working on and away from my baby to this, this, this thing that was much bigger than me that, that now I was involved in the conversation with. And just being involved in that conversation of what equity really looks like and, and what inclusion really looks like and, and, and creating uh, an, an organization, an entity specifically for to advocate for and to support people that are just like me, I would not have imagined that this is where 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 all of it would have would have um, would have headed. And so, so I ended up working on the um, focusing on Black Founders Matter. But I decided to go and work for a venture fund for a while because I wanted to see how it worked from the inside. So I had this idea of going to work for a venture fund, and and then like. I ended up having a meeting with a venture fund who was supposed to give me advice, but they just offered me a job like on the spot. And so I took the job. I worked for them for the, for most of 2019. And then after the experience of working with them, I wasn't sure if I wanted to stay in venture, right? I wasn't sure if that was necessarily the way that I wanted to make my mark or wanted to help entrepreneurs. And I was really like toggling around with a few different ideas of, of how I was going to do what I was going to do. And then I, decided that I was going to, you know, that I'd really thought about it, really meditated about it and thought, this is what I set out to do. I'm going to raise this, this money. And so I brought a partner onto my fund and we really sat down and talked about, you know, the vision for the fund, right? What, what did we want to do? It's like, we wanted to, you know, it's like, I wanted to invest in black entrepreneurs because I believed that investing in black entrepreneurs was just good math, right? You have black women are the most highly educated demographic in the United States, and it's like, these are, and that is the group that is the least invested in by venture capital. And so it was like, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense, right? And then in addition to the fact that there were all of these deals, you know, when you're looking at venture capital, it's really about, for those who don't understand anything about venture capital, venture capital is the money that is behind tech companies and behind startups and how startups grow faster and, and you end up getting the app on your phone and, and and pays for the marketing and all that, you know, so like all the fuel that makes startups a thing is really venture capital, right? So venture capital is the money that, that muscles that, that, that goes behind that. And so in order for black people to be able to make their mark in tech, we, they need to be invested in, right? Like, like, you know, in the same way, you know, you have your Mark Zuckerbergs and you have your Jeff Bezos and you have, you know, you know, you know, you, you have these prolific, you know, you have your Steve Jobs, you have these prolific men, white men, mostly in tech. Um, and, and raising this fund was around bringing and enabling more black faces to come to that table. Because, you know, when, when we look at any product that is created for us, right, is, is to, is, you know, our company that pops up is to provide a solution to something that you need that you can't do for yourself, right? Whether it's, social connections, whether it's organization, whether it is, you know, an app to like help you monitor your sleeping or your shopping habits, or, you know, it's like, it's solving a problem for you. And so when, with, when not investing in black entrepreneurs, we're not investing in black problem solvers. And I was like, that's a huge problem, right? Is, is you have black people that are having entirely different lived experience who are, who have proven themselves to be resilient, proven themselves to, 
to thrive even in spite of a lack of resources and we're not looking to this community specifically to to solve problems and it's like they would know a lot about solving problems and so I started we started this fun with the vision of like investing in black problem solvers right and and giving them the fuel to to go faster and often what ends up happening in venture capital is black people can't get investment because one they don't look like everyone else and also we don't have the same generational wealth passed down within our communities to get a startup going so what happens for startups usually is a you know the you know or nowadays is you know a startup will do a friends and family round well they'll raise you know 50k or 70k just from their friends and family to get the you know to, to get themselves going and off the ground and for black entrepreneurs we don't have that generational wealth in our communities right you know the net worth of the average black person as of 2018 was only like fifteen thousand dollars and so where are you going to find that that friends and family around if you're if you don't have anyone in your in your network that has the means to be able to give you ten thousand dollars or give you twenty thousand dollars to help you get start to help you start a business then you're kind of doa right especially as venture because venture the first thing venture capital will ask you is like well have you done a friend and family round it's like well i don't have that network and i said well if you don't have that network then maybe you shouldn't be doing this and so that was a huge problem and so Starting a fund specifically to invest in early and seed stage companies was something that was really important and really and really paramount to me with doing this fund. And so we just finished our first investment into an amazing Black-led startup here in Portland. It's a publishing platform that creates this line of books called A Kid's Book About. They started with a kid's book about racism. They have a kid's book about cancer, a kid's book about belonging, a kid's book about money a kid's book about divorce a kid's book about body image like there's they they've had this incredible brand and it really is it really came from this entrepreneur jelani memory having an issue in his family of like you know he lives in a racially blended household and like they were talking about race all the time and he's like you know well what if, what if i wrote a book for my kids right around this subject and so he wrote this book called a kid's book about racism and only had it for him and his kids. And eventually, years later, decided, okay, I'm going to publish this book, but make a whole line of books. And so they launched last October to strong numbers. And we started our process of trying to raise investment to invest in them back in January, or actually February, February, March, and then COVID-19 happened. And we thought we were not going to be able to raise and get it to this round. But as the um, social justice movement started to really catch wind here in this country, my partner and I decided to like really focus our efforts again on fundraising and investing in this company because now we were seeing this company really start to grow in the way that we knew that they would grow. And so we were able to finish our first investment and now we are in the middle of raising $10 million. Art was something that I was very much discouraged from as a kid, and it's still something that I'm unpacking as an adult. I, w I was what I think was a really creative kid, and I loved singing, I loved performing, and my parents 
couldn't stand it. Like, and my parents, you know, my parents are, are Haitian immigrants. And, and for them, that just wasn't a thing that they wanted to encourage, no matter how much I excelled in it. I, my parents really discouraged it. And that really always put this, like, it was like they kind of like incepted me with this idea that I wasn't a creative and that I wasn't creative. And like the creativity that exists inside of me was always finding ways to like funnel outward. And it's like, I remember when I was 14, I like kind of snuck behind my parents' back and I applied like, you know, like in New York City, when you're going to high school, it's like going to college. So you have like, you get like a big book of every high school program in New York City and you apply like you're going to college, right? You send them your grades and you apply to get into a program. And then, you know, you get your acceptance letters, you know, for which schools wanted you or which schools were like, nah. And so I applied to some of the performing arts schools, right? And like went behind my parents' back and auditioned and got accepted. And I remember like when, um, when I got like the letter, the acceptance letters, like the performing arts school was there and I was, and you know, my parents saw that and they're like, well, you're definitely not doing that. We're going to send you to the pre-engineering program. So my parents, yes, they didn't encourage creativity for me. We had a, I mean, this is the thing. We had a piano in the house and my parents wouldn't even let me take piano lessons. Like they let my sister take piano lessons, but none for me. My parents did not want to encourage music creation from me in any way, shape or form. However, they totally supported my, my sisters in doing it. But for me, they were like, no, no, no. So, you know, like I started singing when I was like, six years old like and like I was a really good singer at that age like I, like I realized I could like hear what something sounded like and I could recreate that sound in my mouth and I think my parents were just like this is fine for around the house I think my parents were just afraid of what I could end up turning into or afraid of what they were already seeing in me who knows I have yet to unpack that with them it's interesting like seeing myself as a creative is only something that I've truly embraced I want to say in the last year and a half, like, or maybe the last two years, max, you know, after that, after I finished high school, I went into ministry. And so I was a Jehovah's witness and I, you know, like my creativity found its way in the fact that I would learn languages. So I became fluent in American sign language. I learned that so that I could do ministry work in it. I moved to the Dominican Republic and learned Spanish, you know, like, because that was a way for me to express something. Right. So, you know, and after I quit, you know, that church cult, whatever you want to call it, um, I really started to let go of all the things that, like, I had always been, like, trained, like, no, don't do it, right? And so I started letting go of those pieces. I'd been a singer my entire life, but my first kind of foray into, like, really exploring my artistry was becoming a DJ. And that only happened because, you know, a friend of mine, um, who worked at a bar here in Portland was like, Hey, we have like, you have all, you collect all these vinyls. Why don't you like come and DJ? And I was like, okay, yeah, that'd be fun. Like, you know, like I was like, I, I, you know, and so then like, I remember I had my first DJ gig and my best friend who was, who, who is also a DJ. He came like five minutes before to show me real quickly, like how the turntables worked and how the mixer worked. I was like, all right, he's like, you'll be fine. Like, you got this. And so I was just like, okay. And then, and so when I got started DJing, it, and I think the, the sense of all art for me, like, starts with feeling. Like, I DJ from a place of feeling, not necessarily from, like, a mathematical place or from just the, like, 
oh, this goes with that. It's more like, okay, how do I feel? How do I want to feel? How does the song make me feel? Okay, what do I want to feel next? And like, that is the thing that like led me as a, DNA, as a DJ. So I started as a DJ just like with my records and it's like, oh, this song, oh, now I want to hear this song, you know? And, and you know, just like, like quickly I started to realize when I started DJing was, is that um, people were coming to, to hear, but to see me do it, right? Like, like I'm a thing to watch while DJing. Like I'm a very high energy, like I'm partying while I'm DJing. I'm not the cool DJ with the headphones on who's just like in the zone and like I'm partying. Like I gotta get out from behind the DJ booth. I gotta dance. Like it's a it's a whole thing. And so that that kind of opened up my creativity and just like seeing myself and understanding myself as a creative. Like and even even when it came to becoming an entrepreneur and, and starting my own tech company, like I still wasn't seeing myself as a creative, like, and seeing myself as an artist. And it's only in the last, really in the last two years that I've like come to see myself like as an artist and, and as someone who's capable of creating. My journey with spirituality has been, it's, you know, you know, like I was raised Jehovah's Witness and gave 33 years of my life to that. Like I did it hardcore. Like I lived at the Watchtower headquarters in Brooklyn for three and a half years, the full-time volunteer. I was a missionary. Like I, I did the whole thing and I started to see the cracks in all of it but I was still scared, right? Like there was so much fear connected to leaving that community. So it's like, when you want to leave, it's like, oh, I'm, I now have to like, have like a nuclear, a nuclear holocaust in my life. And then like, watch everything like, like just wipe out and then start all over again as a human being, like start from scratch. And which is a really daunting thing to do at any point in your life, let alone in your 30s. When I think about my, about my spirituality, it's always been about my relationship with my inner self, right? And I've always been someone that's been really in touch with my inner self. I would say my spirituality took a shift right at the beginning of June of this year, where I, you know, as I started to, started to go out and protest, in this social movement, in the, you know, in the social justice movement, it like opened up something inside of me, right? And really, really opened me up to spirit and to being led and guided by that. And like, whether that you, like you see that as being God, I, I mean, I call it just spirit. I think there, there's so much, and, and just being open to magic. That's something that happened to me in, in quarantine of like really understanding the magic that's already has existed inside of me that like, you know, you're, that, that gets beat out of you as a kid, you know, but you know that, like, you are kind of like Matilda, but, like, you can't quite put your finger on what your power is. And, and, you know, it's like, you know, the the other side or life, you know, or society will tell you that, you know, that none of that stuff is real and that, you know, but people, you know, like, you know, fiction, there's no such thing as fiction to me, right? It's like, think we're channeling things from other realities and from multiple universes, but I don't think there's anything really is fiction. I don't think of anything as really fiction. 
You can follow Marceau's work at blackfoundersmatter.org or on Instagram. Marceau's handle is spelled M-A-R-C-E-A-U-M-I-C-H-E-L. And you can also read an incredible interview and see a beautiful portrait of Marceau in the New York Times. Just Google it. It's pretty great. This episode was sponsored by the Oregon Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition, the Kenton Action Plan, North Portland Community Works, and the Oregon Cultural Trust. Thank you so much for your sponsorship. The episode was written and produced by me, Joni Whitworth, and edited by Matt Larimer. The music for this episode was written and produced by Standing on End. Check them out at standingonend.bandcamp.com or on Instagram at standingonend. If you have any questions or feedback about the show, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out at futureprairie.com or on social media at futureprairie. Thanks so much.